My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. I've had some great opportunities throughout the years to travel to the places of the Bible. And maybe some of you have done that. And I know we just had a team recently that did that. I see the Kellers over there. They got to travel. And and uh, pretty exciting opportunity. I mean, I've been to Israel a number of times. I've been to Egypt. I've been to Turkey. I've been to Greece. I've been to Rome. And it's pretty awesome to kind of read back into those stories and to see the places, the locations, and to kind of correct your vision of what you thought it was like. Uh, I know the very first time my wife and I went in the summer of 2000, somebody sat us down and said, okay, you're probably going to think that you're going to see a lot of things that directly connect, but unfortunately, Christians built a lot of churches right over the top of all those places. And there's wonderful basilicas and cathedrals and things like that, and those are pretty massive, and those are historical. But it's sometimes hard to just grasp what it would have been like to be there. Because after all, it's at least 2,000 years old. You guys, you went to Turkey and Greece where the Apostle Paul traveled. And even when Paul showed up, it was hundreds and hundreds, if not some of those you know, thousands of years old. Some of these temples, some of these places are, are very ancient to us. And I know that sometimes, and I'm sure you're in the same boat, sometimes it's easy to disconnect when we read the Bible, or I would say hard to connect when we read the Bible. I want to talk about that in a few minutes, but I want to welcome you back to Reset. We have two more messages in this series that we've been looking at this fall, and we've really been coming down to the key question. The key question is, who's Jesus? I know there's a lot of other questions. Um, you know, what would it like be like to start over. I've had an opportunity to email back and forth with folks about their reset. What would it look like to kind of re-envision God's original call for us, maybe because of some circumstances or some situations or some people and relationships, we tended to drift away from God and God is calling us back to him. What would it look like to begin again? What would it look like to start over? And I know there are a lot of questions we could ask because I, I like interacting with folks. And some of them are, are, are the barriers, like emotional barriers. If, if I receive Jesus, if I follow him, that means these things will be required of me. These are some changes that I'll have to make. Or maybe you had a bad emotional experience at church early on. You know, it, it's not uncommon when you're young, just you kind of just push off and blow off God in church because of somebody who did something or said something. 
Some of you have emotional barriers. Some of you have intellectual barriers. Like, are you serious? Can we really believe that all the animals were two by two on the ark and that God made Adam and Eve in six days of creation? You know, is that, is that too hard for us to grasp and fathom? Those are some tough ones, right? I mean, did God actually part the sea and the children of Israel walk through that one? Did he show up in a burning bush? Did Jesus actually walk on water? Maybe he found a convenient sandbar in the middle of the Sea of Galilee during the storm and only looked like he walked on water, right? Those are intellectual barriers, some challenges. Uh, sometimes we have religious barriers as well, well because we kind of already believe, we kind of already go to church. We're Christians, right? Uh, that's kind of the story of my life. I'll share next week. We, we're already in the club. We're already in the family. We're Americans, right? We, we just kind of know this. We drift into Christianity because that's who we are as an identity, maybe even as a nation, we might think. And so I don't really need that because I already have it. Or I think the hardest one is the willful barrier. The roadblock that stops us when we ultimately come to that point of seeing all those things fade away is I, sometimes I just don't want to believe because if I believe this is what I give up. And so those have been some challenges we've been kind of wrestling with and talking with when it comes to a reset of your faith. And I want to challenge you, though, the really important question is not something like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. That was the Middle Ages question, the theological sticking point of their day. But it's this, it's who is Jesus? Because that is the crux of everything in our faith. Who is Jesus? And if he is who he says he is, what does that require of me? What would it mean to actually accept that as valid truth, which would then therefore alter everything in my life? And is that worth doing? You know, next week we'll finish up this series, or in two weeks, and we're going to start a Christmas series. I know you're going to love it. But I want to go back to this idea of a reset. And I want to talk about that gap that I started with. You know, there's at least a 2,000-year gap between what you read on the pages of Scripture and what we experience. And it can be really challenging for followers of Jesus to read things and kind of read them with fresh eyes or hear them with fresh ears or to have a fresh heart when you dig into the pages of Scripture because we know things already. We've heard things before. We've sung some songs. We have some facts memorized. And we walk right into this preconceived set of ideas because of words. And those words have meaning. I mean, it's easy to disconnect because, sure, you open the pages of the Bible. And I'm finishing up the book of John in my daily reading through the Bible. And you could see these things. And I'm just in John 15 this morning. You know, I'm the vine. I, I don't know. I've read that at least 34 times, probably 100 times. I've preached it a dozen times, right? And then all of a sudden to kind of go, well, wait, wait, where am I disconnecting? He's with his guys in the upper room or when he's teaching or when he's feeding 5,000 and when he's doing miracles. And it's like, that's, that's really great. And we kind of put it in a different box or a different drawer in our wardrobe, our dresser. And we go, that's for the spiritual part of my life. Because it's really old. It's really disconnected from us. Sure, when you read about Joshua standing there and having the sun and the moon stand still, you go, wow, that was awesome. But that's a world away. I mean, the location is a world away. The time is a world away. And it's easy to go, wow, what would it have been like to be there? I don't really know. I'm here today. I mean, think about this. When you leave today, you'll probably go to Costco or Fred Meyer. Tomorrow you'll go to work. You'll go to school. And, and just kind of look around you. And how much of your current modern environment, your life, your workplace, everything that's going on today, how much of it is a, is a connection or a disconnection to the Bible? 
and, and just start talking to people. I mean, sure, it was great that Paul did that or that Peter did that. Sure, it was great that Moses did that. But how is it possible for you to make a daily connection with God's truth and it be just as relevant for you today as it was for them when it actually happened, right? I mean, I know it had been awesome to stand there up on the side of a cliff hiding in a rock when Moses walked up to that burning bush. But there was only one of those in the Bible and we're not going to see it, right? Sure, it would have been amazing to sit there and pass those baskets around as Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish and to be able to eat of that. But we're not going to do that. I mean, at most, you can go to a place called Tabga right now. And there's a little church that represents that by the Sea of Galilee. You can sit on the little hillside there with all the flowers. You can imagine Jesus giving his Sermon on the Mount. But then you got to get back in the bus and you got to hop back on the plane And you got to come back to life here. And one of the hardest parts, for me at least, as a follower of Jesus, is reading what's in the the text, the story, the, the pages of the Bible, and knowing that it's just as relevant today, just as real, just as impacting today as it was then, even though I'm in a different time, I'm in a different culture, I'm in a different land. Today I want to change, hopefully, your perception of what it means to be a Christian to be a follower of Jesus. You know, I want to start with a story and just want to develop this a little bit. Jesus had been ministering with his disciples and he had been walking with them and he had been doing all these things, but he reached a point where he took them on a ministry trip. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an old youth pastor and I don't have a lot of facial hair either, Jacob, so that's okay. I can't do that in November thing. Um, but um, if I did, it'd be all gray and you wouldn't want to see that. And, but one of the greatest things I would ever do as a youth pastor is pile them in the church van and drive somewhere and go on a ministry retreat. Jesus did that in essence. He took his disciples on a ministry trip. He left the Sea of Galilee and he headed north a, a long way to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was about 150 miles walking. I looked on the map this week. They'd be like walking from here to Tacoma, right? And if you've been to Tacoma, it's not worth the walk. Okay, all right. And, and so Jesus has his guys and he's walking them up and he has them specifically going to a very important place for a reason, for a question. And so he takes them up there. Now, it doesn't look like much today. Um, if you were on our Israel trip a couple of years ago, we went up there to Caesarea Philippi in the, um, before like the Old Testament time, it would have been Benias or Panias, and it was a hustling, bustling, religious, commercial place of activity, worshiping the god Pan, the Greek god Pan. Um, there are a lot of niches built into the wall. There used to be a, a river that flowed out of this cave, and uh, there was a lot of religious symbolism. There was a lot of commercial symbolism. It was a hub of religious activity. And it had been different names, but now at the time of Jesus, it's Caesarea Philippi. And the reason is, is because they were honoring the emperor. You see, in in AD 14, uh, Caesar Augustus and all of that awesome worship of Caesar had died. 
If you know any of the history of the Caesars, when Rome was a republic, uh, there was a Senate and there was all kinds of ways of dealing with their life and their existence. And then with uh, this idea of an empire, it came up because of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar began to quite, what we'd call like take the throne. And he became that first Caesar. But the first empire, emperor, was his son, the adopted son. Caesar Augustus. And so when he died, they renamed this place Caesarea. And Philippi, he was the tetrarch there, so he got his name in there too. Uh, and so he's up there, and Jesus is up there in a place that represents the power of Rome. Now, they're not in Rome. They're in a little backwater area, right? Uh, but, but they want to represent it. They want to honor the emperor because by that time they're believing that the emperor is actually divine. The emperor is God. And so he's God's representative on the earth, but he's also somewhat divine. And so now he's this, this city represents the son of the earthly God, right? He's a dead God. Okay. He died and, and, and his son died, but this city represents something pretty powerful. It represents this wonderful wealth of an empire that ruled the world at the time. It had taken over from the Greek empire that had covered over with Alexander and Philip, right? And so here you've got this city that represents all of the powers and the beauty and the glory of a Roman empire. And it's dedicated to the son of the first god of, of the Roman empire, Caesar himself. And so Jesus walks up, and as he gets to this place, he begins asking his disciples a question. It's the question we've been talking about every week. Who is Jesus? Or as he asks it, um, who do people say that I am? And they go through this litany of different ideas, and then it gets to this part right here. But he asks them, he turns to his disciples, okay, I'm glad that's what people say about me, but who do you say I am? That's the all-important question, folks. Who do you say Jesus is? Now, on one level, your answer doesn't really matter because he is that anyway. But it does matter for you because it's an acknowledgement of that you believe who Jesus is. And so Jesus asked his disciples, well, okay, that's great. They think I'm John the Baptist come back to life. They think I'm maybe the prophet Elijah. I'm all these things. Okay, great. But who do you say that I am? Now, Simon Peter, who always seems to come to the front of the line, he always opens his mouth first. Sometimes he sticks his foot in his mouth, but at least he's opening his mouth, right? He says this, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Messiah is also in Greek, the word Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah, it means the anointed one, the one that God had prepared from many, many years prior. The the writings of the Old Testament speaking about this special anointed one who would come and rescue his people. You're that guy. You're the Messiah, the son, and check it out, of the living God, the true God. We're here, and it's no accident that Jesus took him to Caesarea Philippi up in this area that represented all the grandeur, all the glory, all the beauty of Rome and the son of that God. And Peter says, we got one better than that. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one, the son of the living God. That's the right answer. And Peter got it right. And so Jesus digs in a little deeper, and I love this. Look what he says. He says, Jesus replied, you're blessed. 
Simon, son of John, or Peter, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. A little sidebar note right here. Uh, one of the places in the Gospels, Jesus says that no one can come, no one can come unless the Father draw him. That you're even here, that you're in a relationship with God, that maybe you're even attracted or you're curious about this, or you're watching online and you're just kind of checking it out. It's, this is what Jesus says, God himself has pulled those heartstrings to begin to look at me. He says to Peter, he says, my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now, I say to you that you're Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now, if you're a Catholic and have a Catholic background, you already have a preconceived idea what this means, and as that Peter is the first pope, that Jesus was building his church on Peter. And if you're a Protestant and you protested some things, you're like, no way, that's not it at all. It's the confession of faith, this confession that Jesus is is going to build his church upon. And I just have a really exciting moment to tell you about. I'm not going to care about that right now. That's not the point of this message. So we can argue later. I'm right and you're wrong. You know, no, just teasing. It doesn't matter in this moment because that's not what we're going to talk about. I want to talk about this statement that Jesus makes. He says, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, see, here's where the disconnect comes in. The 2,000 years of reading the Bible, of having billions of sermons, I'm sure, preached, right, on this, is that as soon as we hear the word church, something comes to mind. And, and I guarantee you that what comes to mind is not what came to mind when Jesus said that back then. You see, when the writers of Scripture wrote it down, Matthew in this case, there's a word here, the word ecclesia, and it's this idea of a gathering. In fact, it was just a secular word. It was a word used in Rome. I don't know if you guys got to any of those gathering places, but in every Roman, because it comes from Greek, every Roman city in a polis there, they had specific places, and one of them was the ecclesia, was the gathering place, was where you would go into the city, uh, kind of like your Today, we'd look like a courtroom, but you would make decisions. You would gather together. Or if you're in a homeowner's association, God forbid, you know, you're in there and you come together for an annual meeting, right? You come together to make decisions or to hear about decisions that were made from higher up. And as a city, you kind of talk about this. That's that word. It just means a gathering place. It means an assembly. And in, in literally without just any religiosity to it, it simply means a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some place of public assembly. That's all it means. It doesn't mean whatever you think of when you think of church, okay? It just means, and, and then in the Christian sense, it began to be mean an assembly of followers of Jesus who have gathered to worship him. That's what Jesus said he would build. Jesus did not say, I'm going to build a bunch of buildings, Jesus did not say, I'm going to build a bunch of Sunday morning worship services. He didn't say any of those things. Now, for the first 300 years of the church, they didn't have those anyway, right? It doesn't, I mean, what we do today looks nothing 
looks absolutely nothing like what they did back then. I mean, there are some threads, there are some elements of it, but the way we sing and the way we gather and how we do it and how we do messages doesn't look like that at all back in that day. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It could be a bad thing. But what it meant back then was that followers of Jesus would gather together and they would represent something. They would represent Jesus because they were the gathering. They were this group of people that had assembled together to declare that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And you can study history and you can see how as time went on in the Roman Empire, you know, accepted and believed in Jesus, that buildings were built and then there was structure and leadership and there was all kinds of liturgy and those things in some churches, East and West, they've carried on for over a thousand, if not 1500 years, and they look just the same way. But here in kind of Protestant America, it looks a lot different. We do it the way we do it. But Jesus did not make a declaration that he would build a place. He did not make a declaration that he would build a program. He did make just, he made a simple declaration, a beautiful declaration that he would build a people. And I know that when you've come today, you probably thought about it, or maybe you talked about it. You got in the car and you said, okay, let's go to church, right? And which I'm sure, and you know, just be honest, we thought about a building, right? We thought about this structure, which is kind of funny because it wasn't built as a church. You can see that, right? It was built as a, a place to pull silicon for the, uh, the, the, the ministry of building computers, right? Okay, this whole wonderful thing of technology up here in the silicon forest. This was just a bunch of stone, a bunch of brick, a bunch of block, a bunch of steel that was built to make chips, right? And the Lord got it for us and we built a church out of it, right? And we use that word. And I don't think it's a bad word. I just think that sometimes it misses the mark. And then you probably were thinking, oh, I'm going to go to church, a place, and we're also going to go to church because it starts at 9 o'clock. And if you were a good little boy and girl, you got an extra hour sleep this morning, right? Because the church service started at 9 on the new time, Right? And if, if, if you somehow like really enjoyed the extra hour and you maybe enjoyed a couple hours, you know, you're watching online, you're like, oh, man, I just barely woke up, right? Or maybe some people are going to come to the 11 o'clock service. This is always the better time of the year than, than in the spring because, you know, the spring forward and then everybody's late, right? You know, they start coming at 10 o'clock, like the church is over, right? Because the church is a program. It's not a place and it's not a program. I understand what we mean by that. But I want you to look to the people around you. Just look around. If you're online, maybe you got people in your family that are there. That's the church. Jesus said, I will build my gathering of people. Now, again, whenever there are people, there's a program. I understand that. You can go anywhere you go in the world and go to church, and there's a program. They might even have a piece of paper printed out called a program, right? It's got to be like that, lest the Holy Spirit show up and mess everything up, right? Because this is the order of how things go. This is the program. I understand that. And you got to go to a place, right? Back in my day, you'd open up, what was that called? Oh, phone book, right? And, uh, yellow pages. 
you know, and you'd pick up the phone and nobody picks up the phone anymore. Right. And you pick up the phone and you call and you want to find out about the church, the place and you drive there. That's not what Jesus meant at all. Jesus said, I will build my people and the gates of Hades or hell. Here it's translated the powers of hell, but literally it was this idea of a defensive structure built to protect a city. In this sense, this metaphor, the city is hell. Those gates will not prevail. Gates are defensive. They're not offensive. You don't grab the gates and attack people. You don't smack people. Satan's not smacking us with the gates. We're storming the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail because his gathering, his people, will storm into hell and rescue people out of it. That's what Jesus is saying. I know it gets dark at times. Spiritually, Maybe you look around in the world. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to panic right now. There's a lot of reasons to wonder. You know, there's a lot of reasons to worry. I get all that. Uh, but there have been reasons to do all those things for the last 2,000 years. And the gates of hell have not stood because enclaves, gatherings of followers of Jesus have pushed and pushed and pushed. And those gates have broken open. And we have stormed into those gates. And we have rescued people from the very pit of hell. That's what Jesus said he would build. That's what he predicted. And then he headed to Jerusalem and died. (laughs) You're like, hold on, excuse me? Can you imagine being one of those followers of Jesus? Uh, Peter, maybe. John, James, all those guys. Those women that gathered around Jesus and after this incredible proclamation of what Jesus was going to build and the excitement and the buzz and just, it was intense, right? And he goes in and he's handed over to the religious leaders, to the Romans, to a cross, to a grave, a tomb, and he's resurrected. But before the resurrection, you got to wonder, right? I mean, I'd be wondering, did did we get that wrong? He was going to build something and he's gone? How could a leader build something and not be here? The gates of hell won't prevail. Sure looked like they prevailed the day that he was grabbed and tortured and beaten and mocked and spit upon. Sure looked like the gates of hell were winning, right? Looked like the whole kingdom of Satan was just absolutely having a party. And he's hung on a cross and he dies. You know there had to be a question, a disconnect of how could that be true if what Jesus said and what we're seeing are the same? It doesn't make any sense. And as I shared last week, the miraculous happened and everything is built upon a person and an event. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He's real and he rose from the grave. And then he appeared on a hillside up in the Galilee and he said these words. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, we talk about this a lot. We've talked about it over and over again. There's only one command in here, and that is the command to make disciples or literally the word disciple people. 
and, and how you disciple people is you go and you baptize and you teach. And we've seen that and we've structured our church around that. That's what Jacob was talking about with the pathway of discipleship to go, to baptize, to teach. And that's making disciples. That's what we do around here. That's what we program around here. That's what we have in our budget around here. This is what we do, right? We make disciples. We don't just gather. We gather to make disciples. This is what Jesus commanded us to do. But one of the things we often miss, and I know this as church leaders, because I hang out with a bunch of them all the time, we forget key parts of this. In fact, it's the bookends. It's the, the bread around the meat of the sandwich. Jesus says, I have been given all authority in heaven on earth. You know what that means? That means you have no authority for your life. You were not given authority over your life. Jesus was given authority over your life. That means I, as lead pastor here, have no authority over this church. Jesus has been given all authority. This means that we don't get to make decisions about the purpose of the church. We don't get to make decisions about how we would do it the way we want to do it. We have to do it the way he wants to do it. And when we submit ourselves to him, he makes the decisions. And I know I've been around churches. I know that there are deacon boards that have been given all authority, or at least they think they have, or elder boards, or, or, or pastors, or, or patriarchs, or matriarchs, power brokers in churches. I know that. I know that. And they will hold on to their authority, but they've been given no authority. Jesus alone has been given all authority. And with all authority, he says, here's your command, disciple people, make disciples. You don't get to decide what you're going to do as a church. You're going to disciple because I've been given all authority. And then he wraps it up with these words. He says, and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm not leaving you. We know that he sent the Holy Spirit right after this event. And the Holy Spirit is God's presence within us to empower us, to enable us to do the making of disciples, right? In Acts 1.8, it says you'll be given power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, not to have a great worship service, but to be my witnesses. That's what you're going to be. And so we don't get to decide the purpose of our church, of our gathering. We might decide this building or that building, this structure or that structure, this time or that time, this style of music or this style of message. We can decide those things, but we don't get to decide the purpose of the church. Jesus has already decided it. Who has ultimate authority in your life? He better, Jesus better have ultimate authority in your life because he has been given all authority, all authority. Imagine that because of what Jesus did by dying on a cross, by being resurrected, by giving his life over, Father God gave him all authority. We know this, it says that one day we will all bow, right? Every tongue will confess. Every knee will drop to the ground. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone. Why? Because he's been given all authority everywhere. And he says, therefore, with that in mind, you go and you make disciples and you baptize them and you teach them all that I taught you. And then I will be with you to make sure it happens. That's what Jesus said he would build a gathering of disciple makers. Now, that's what they did. They went out and they did it. These followers of Jesus who had at one moment been so afraid and so scared and hiding and running for their life, they're empowered by God's spirit. And just, just two guys in particular, Peter, 
He stands up in Acts chapter 2, and with this incredible boldness of God's spirit, he preaches the message, and the basic message is this. You know, God sent Jesus. You killed him. You're in trouble, right? That's it. Deal with it. Repent. Turn to God, right? And thousands upon thousands. And Peter was God's messenger for the Jewish people in Israel. And the church exploded in numbers all through the book of Acts. And then you get about a third of the way or a little almost halfway into the book of Acts. And you discover that God also calls another man named Paul to be a, an apostle, not to the Jews, even though he was a Jew, he's also a Roman citizen, but to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul gave his life to going and spreading the message and going around to all the places we got to see in Turkey and Greece and to foreign cultures and proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. He's Messiah and he's been given all authority and all your gods are worthless. Come to the true God, the living God, Jesus Christ. And they gave their lives for that. And they did that, well, about 30 years And for about 30 years, Peter preached and preached and led this church out of Jerusalem. Even though it was intense persecution and scattering, he led this church. And he proclaimed that Jesus Christ did and said everything that they were talking about. Paul, same thing, traveled all around the known world at the time and told everybody about this message. And then somewhere around AD 60, 62, 64, somewhere around there, They both died. They both died. And and you have to wonder, just like when Jesus died, would they have maybe second-guessed the whole building of the church thing? Because Peter goes to Rome, and Caesar, Emperor Nero, has him crucified as a way to just shut out this new growth of followers of Jesus called Christians. And Peter, who didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord, he requested that he be crucified upside down. And so he was hung on a cross upside down and died for the message. And then a little later, history tells us that Paul, who had done so much of spreading the gospel of preaching the message, of writing so much of the New Testament. He himself went and Nero had him beheaded for this message. And you got to wonder, right? Did it work? Was it worth it? The emperor was the most important person in the world at the time. He was God incarnate in the Roman eyes. He represented this empire that had won that had conquered all the enemies and looked like they were conquering Christianity. Followers of Jesus were outlawed. They were arrested. They were tortured. They were killed. Could Jesus have gotten it wrong? I mean, Paul was just a Pharisee, right? Called by Jesus one day. Peter was just a fisherman in a backwater village, right? Called by Jesus. I mean, if you go to Rome, as they were to walked into Rome, it represented all the powers that be. It represented Jupiter, the all-knowing God, the all-powerful God, or Mars, the God of war. And they certainly were conquering in war. And here you've got this God called Jesus that you can't even build a temple to or an idol to or a picture to. Peter and Paul were killed. Now, I, I wrote this down. I want to read this to you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you could have just, like in this moment, go back in time, you jump in your TARDIS or your time machine, and you go back there, 
and, and, you, and you get to walk with Peter on the way to his crucifixion. Or you get to walk with Paul on the way to his beheading. And you just told him about what had happened the last 2,000 years. And you got to say, hey guys, I know, I know you're going to die for Jesus. But I want to tell you the rest of the story, at least as far as I know it. That for a couple hundred years, it's going to be really hard. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Christians will give their lives. They will be tortured. They will be ripped apart by lions. In the very place that you go to die, many, many more. But one day, one day, there'll be so many followers of Jesus that they will conquer the powers of Rome because the gates of Rome could not prevail against Jesus gathering. And the gates of hell could never prevail against Jesus gathering. And the very places that you're going to die will one day represent Jesus. That there will be buildings built. There will be crosses erected. There will be names of church buildings with your name on it. Peter, one day, one of the biggest, most fanciest churches ever built will be built on the site of your death. And it will be the most amazing basilica. And it'll have your name on it. And Paul, there'll be churches everywhere with your name on it. In fact, all those letters you wrote for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus, gatherings of Jesus will meet together and will still read your letters. And they will still talk about what you said. And you will impact the world because in my age, Paul, Peter, in my day, there are gatherings all around the world now with the name of Jesus. And they get up and they tell about you, Peter. And yeah, they tell some of the embarrassing stories, that's for sure. And they use you as an example of what not to do, but that's okay because they also use you as an example of a follower of Jesus that gave everything. And Paul, they'll talk about your exploits. In fact, people will give up their very lives to go around the world to follow in your steps as a missionary And they will want to be like you and tell people who never heard about Jesus about this Messiah. And just a little side note here, moms and dads will name their children Peter and Paul after you. And they'll name their dogs Nero and Caesar. (laughs) That's not my joke, by the way. I stole that from another pastor, but I thought it was funny. Got to break the ice a little bit here, right? In fact, my wife and I, Peter, my wife and I, Paul, we went to Rome and we walked through what was left of the forum. We stood at what was left of Circus Maximus. We stood there in the Colosseum and there was Jesus all over the place because the gates of hell will not prevail against his gathering. As you consider a reset for your faith, As you examine the truth claims, you have to come back to what I said last week. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus and what did he do? Because I believe there was a Jesus and I believe there was an event that changed everything. And the best part of this is 2,000 years later, we're invited into this, into Jesus gathering. And I know for me, for me, in December of 1979, 
I responded to this message. Somebody made a disciple of me. And in February 3rd of 1980, I was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And for 40 plus years, I've been on a journey of making disciples. I I would have never imagined this for my life. But Jesus calls us and he commands us with all authority to do this, to make disciples. And as we invite people into it, we don't invite them into a church building necessarily a church program necessarily. We invite people into a gathering, a community that represents Christ on the earth with one mission, and that is make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching. You know, when you receive Christ, you not only receive Jesus, you receive his family. You receive the entirety of the church, your entry into the church. And the church is God's people on the earth, the hope of the world because Jesus is the hope of the world, bringing the solution to all of our problems. Jesus said that the gates of hell, the powers of hell would not prevail. So there's nothing to fear, but there's an invitation to come under his authority. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for the words of Christ up there at Caesarea Philippi that represent Truly the power that Jesus had to make such an audacious claim that he would build his gathering and the gates of all the powers of this earth and even the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That we would be a part of something until he returns again that would be about making disciples the way he did. So Father, as we invite people to walk in his path, may we be doing it as well. And not just showing up at a building or attending a service, but being a people, a gathering of Christ on the earth. We pray in his name, amen.